Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church, and I'm delighted to welcome you. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. A couple of things while you're turning there. If you're a married couple walking into this house today, you walk past the table uh, that says Grace Marriage. Today is the last day to sign up for Grace Marriage. We have 50 couples signed up, which I think is just fantastic. I love that. But if you haven't signed up, we still need you and your spouse to sign up. Whatever excuse you're saying, we don't have the money, money's not going to keep you from being Grace Marriage. Sign up anyway. Well, Pastor Tim, it's four different you know, days uh, through the year, and I don't know if we can make the second one. Listen, I don't know if I'll be here next week. I mean, you don't either. Sign up anyway. Just sign up anyway. No real excuse uh, when you think about what your marriage is worth, and your marriage is worth this investment. So whether you're newlywed or oldlywed, whatever stage of life you're in, please do this. We need you in Grace Marriage. And as I say, it's the best investment you could ever make for the sake of your marriage, your children, and the generations of your family to follow. This is the best choice you could make. Also, you heard uh, Warren speaking about who's your one. I want you to go ahead and take a card out. They're in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, take those out, pass them around to one another. Um, it is very overwhelming to imagine taking the gospel to the whole world, but you can be a witness to one. So I want you to, in the course of this message today, to be asking yourself, who's your one? Who is the one person uh, in whose life you can make a difference for the sake of the gospel? Uh, Romans chapter 5, turn in your Bibles. Again, grab a Bible from the P-Rack if you need to and open the Bible. I know that some of you are a little ambivalent about the Bible, just in general. Uh, you want it to be true, but you're not sure. Uh, it, sometimes it seems like a book of rules that may or may not apply to your life. Sometimes it may seem like a culture of you know, Bible times that have nothing to do with the world in which we live in, and you may wonder if the Bible can be trusted at all. I, I think part of our problem is that we go to the Word of God, we go to the Bible, and we want it to be about us. We want the Bible to be about ourselves. And so this is what you've done. It's what I've done too. In the moments when I've gone to the Bible, most frequently it's been some sort of question I was asking, some sort of problem, some sort of trial, and I go to the Bible looking for it. So let's say like your dog dies, right? Your dog dies. So you run to the Bible and you go to the back where there's an index and you start looking under like G for golden retriever. So you're looking, you know, golden retriever, and you're looking through the Bible. It's like, you know, it doesn't say anything about golden retriever. I mean, and, and you're right. doesn't say a word about golden retriever. Russia invades Ukraine, and immediately you're like, you know, you know P is for Putin. You know, where's, where's Putin? You know, Pastor Tim, would you preach a message that explains to us, you know, Russia and the Ukraine? And, and I'm telling you, that's not really how the Bible works. You, you realize that the guy that you're dating is a loser. And so you go, go to the Bible, you know, looking for loser. You know, L is for loser. There's not, nothing here. And this is what I'm telling you. You want the Bible to be about you, and it's not about you. The Bible is about God. It is first a book that reveals to us who God is. It is a living God whose presence you will encounter in these pages. I'm telling you, the Bible reveals to us God, God's own self. Now, in the course of revealing to us God and the will of God, there are many, many principles that are going to apply to your life. Make no mistake, but the Bible's about God. Romans chapter 4, uh, not reading it today, but Romans chapter 4 has this verse that says that God is the God who brings life out of death and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's amazing. 
the God who can bring life out of death. You understand, if he can bring life out of death, then he can do that for you. The dead things in your life that need to be brought back to life, understand, God can do that. He can call into existence. He can call into being things that don't even exist. God can do this, and if he can do this, he can do this for you. So the question you ask is how? How does that work? How does he do that for me? And, uh, and I guess to answer that question, I'd say it's a process that is described for us in Romans chapter 5. So let's read these verses together. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Uh, I love these verses. Uh, listen to what Christ has done for you. Listen to what God will do out of your trials and problems. Uh, listen to the word about hope and then... Uh, Ask God to show you how you can know. How can you know? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. Can't we, though? Like, you know, that, that's, that's, that's saying a lot right there. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know. For we know that they help us to develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we'll certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Back to the beginning, back to verse 1. What, what has Jesus done for us? Let's just walk through, keep your Bible open, just walk through these verses with me. Now, most of you know, if you don't know, let me tell you, the, the Bible, it was the New Testament, what you're reading today was originally written in the Greek language. So none of us speak Greek. We all go to the store and we buy a Bible, an English translation. So we're reading in English but we don't all have the same translation. So sometimes the words I'm reading are a little bit different from the words you're reading, but it's still a good translation. It all means the same. So my translation, verse 1 says, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith. Your translation may use a word like justified, since we have been justified by faith, but it means the same thing. The first thing Jesus has done has made us right with God. Jesus makes you right with God. Now, to say that you have been made right with God in Christ implies that you understand that you were wrong, that there was something wrong, 
And if you don't know Jesus, if you've not accepted the salvation, the gift that Jesus brings to your life, then you may not even understand this, that that there's something wrong, deeply, profoundly broken about your life. You were created by a loving God who has every intention of sharing his life with you, every intention of blessing your, your life, but you're separated from him. There's something wrong. Something has been made wrong. And understand, it is Jesus and only Jesus who makes it right. You can come into a right relationship because this is what Jesus does for you. Jesus has made us right with God. Now next, here in verse 2, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege in which we now stand. Your, Your version of the Bible may say grace, this grace in which we stand. It's the same thing. Jesus gives us what we could never deserve. That's grace. In my translation, it says that Jesus allows us to stand in this place of undeserved privilege. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. And yet here I stand, a place of privilege. You ever experienced anything like that? My father-in-law is a great man, Colonel Thomas Wilson. He's a retired Army colonel, a great man, a great military man. Uh, This man's a dude now. When he lived in Alaska, after he retired from the military, he took a job in the mayor's cabinet. He was director of transportation for the city of Anchorage. My father-in-law is awesome. He is somebody, right? So we would go up to Alaska to visit him. And one year, uh, it was around the 4th of July, there was a big uh, concert in the a big courtyard in the middle of downtown Anchorage. So we were going. Honestly, that didn't sound like a, a barrel of fun to me. But I'm with the in-laws. And with the in-laws, you just don't raise a stink. You know, you just go. So I'm in the car go into this concert with the in-laws. But when we get there, I'm with Colonel Wilson, right? He has on his dress blues. So we arrive at the courtyard and instantly they see Colonel Wilson and they escort us because the mayor and his cabinet, all the political dignitaries, all of the VIPs, y'all, there is a VIP section. And since I'm with Colonel Wilson... They escort me to the VIP section. I'm not a very important person in Anchorage, Alaska, but my father-in-law is. And for that reason, I am in the VIP section. Now, I will say I don't agree with that kind of thing. I don't think that some people are more important than other people. I don't think you ought to set these people aside and give them special privileges. I don't agree with any of that. Until I was taken to the VIP section... And I didn't think I'd like it, but I did. I did. Y'all, I'm telling you, it was an outside courtyard. It was beautiful, Anchorage, Alaska. You know, the sun never sets in the summer. So we're having this, you know, concert. It's night, but it's, it's still day. It's so amazing. And so we're sitting in these chairs. Y'all, they had padded chairs, like better than at my house. Padded chairs for all the VIPs. So I'm sitting in a padded chair. Y'all, this is the VIP section where I am. Over here is just the peas. You know, you know just the peas, the people. And they don't have chairs. Like, there's not even a folding chair for them. They just bring blankets out of their car and lay around on the ground like animals. <laughs> They're just laying out there. But I, my behind is in a padded seat. I liked it. They had waiters and waitresses, like in white shirts and black aprons, coming around, bringing us bottles of water. It's awesome. In the VIP section, the peas, they didn't get any of that. And I got used to it really fast, y'all. I was loving this. There were some empty chairs in the VIP section, so some of the VIPs must not have shown up. Uh, but anyway, that, that was okay. But I noticed this lady coming in, not a VIP, not a VIP. 
she came in and stood. And I could see she had her eye on the empty chair right in front of me. And I'm thinking, girl, no, you don't. No, you don't. So to make sure that she didn't get any ideas, I looked at her. You know, like, I knew she's wanting that chair, but I'm thinking, no, no, she is not, she is not a VIP, I could tell, she was not a VIP, she just wanted a seat. And so that girl, I'm telling you, y'all, she's slick, she kind of, when no, she thought nobody was looking, she sort of came in, dropped down her bags, and put her behind down in a padded chair right in front of me, like she was a VIP. I'm saying, security, security, I mean, I didn't actually say security, but I was thinking, hey, hey, somebody, y'all, she is not a VIP. We have a person in the VIP section who does not belong here. She does not deserve it. And then I realized there are at least two of us in the VIP section who really don't belong you understand what it means when I say Jesus gives us this place of undeserved privilege? He allows us to stand before God as if we deserve to be there, as if we've earned that, to stand in the presence of a God of moral perfection, sinners that we are, and he not just, you know, you know smite us like the sinners that we are. I mean, no, we stand here as if we're Jesus himself. We stand here as if we deserve it, and that's just something Jesus does for us. He gives us his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. We don't deserve it, and yet Jesus just allows us to stand before for God as if we deserve it. Isn't that good? Jesus has given us what we could never, ever deserve. And then notice this, because I love this. Jesus brings us hope that never disappoints. Now, by this point in your life, you have learned the lesson that no matter what they're selling you, they're going to oversell it. In other words, this car that you buy, that's going to be the nicest car you've ever had, it will be for a while, but sooner or later, it's like any other, it's going to smell like french fries, like every other car you've ever driven. You know, sooner or later, everything disappoints. You got married with such high hopes, but sooner or later, those hopes were disappointed. It turns out, you know, this, this man is not what you thought. This is not really the woman you dated. You understand? We're always disappointed because everything in this life cannot live up to its hype. Nothing delivers on the promises that it makes. This is the world, and this is the truest thing I know how to tell you. In this world, all your hopes will be disappointed except for this. Jesus brings us hope that never disappoints. You will never, not one time, stand and look at Jesus and say, Yeah, Jesus, you didn't really come through for me. You will never stand and look at Jesus and say, yeah, Jesus, you promised me this, but you really didn't deliver. You will never be able to say that. Jesus, in every instance, is going to give you hope, and he will never disappoint you. As a matter of fact, Jesus is always going to do more, more than you could have possibly even asked for or imagined. You'll never be disappointed. Now, now that's claiming a lot. How does that work? Well, it's a process, and Paul lays it out in this letter to the Roman church, starting in verse 3. It starts in an amazing place. It starts with your trials. Now, I got trials. You have problems in trials. We're talking about the circumstances of our life that we don't prefer, 
the, the, the trials, the problems, the, the, the mess we have to go through. And, and life is full of this kind of thing. And that's why I think it's kind of an amazing place to begin. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Now, that sounds crazy. Because I'm telling you, when I come into a problem or a trial, I don't, I don't feel like rejoicing. But, but this is why you have to pay attention. When you fall into a trial, a problem, understand, you haven't seen yet what God's going to do. We can rejoice, and you'll rejoice too, once you begin to understand what God does with you in your middle of your trials, your problems. It's the middle of something, you haven't seen the end of it yet. So stay with it. Trials. Paul goes on to say, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop. What? Say the word. Yeah, that, that don't sound so good either now, does it? Like I was, I was building that up like, like it's going to be good news. But when I'm in a trial, I'll just be honest with you, I don't want somebody to tell me, yeah, it's going to last a while. I want you to tell me, yeah, this is probably one of those 24-hour things. You're going to feel better in the morning. If I'm in a problem, if I'm in a circumstance where my life is coming apart, would you please tell me that it's going to come back together soon? I do not want to be told that I'm going to have to persevere. But, but this is what we're saying here. Trials, they develop perseverance. They develop endurance. It starts with trials, circumstances. I, I grew up in the country. I'm, I guess I'm still more or less a, a, a country guy. Uh, my dad's farm is like a mile and three quarters this way. Um, man, I was just that redneck kid. Uh, I used to raise bottle calves in the winter. You know what I'm talking about? Country people in the room. Am I in a room full of city folks? Um, and so we'd take these little calves, and then I would feed them milk all through the winter to raise them up and have these big bottles. Or Mostly for me, I had this big aluminum bucket that I would make warm milk in, and it had this giant nipple at the end, and I would feed the calves with that. It, it was really pretty fantastic, except for one thing. My daddy always had chickens. Now, I know y'all seen it, so, you know, chickens, but, but there was always a rooster. We always had a mean rooster. It wasn't always the same mean rooster, but we always had a mean rooster. I mean, and when we had, when I say mean rooster, I'm saying we had roosters from the devil. I mean this, y'all. We had, and so I remember one in particular, this yellow rooster. He was horrible. He hated me and the feelings were mutual. I hated, I hated that chicken. I hated that chicken so bad. Um, this chicken didn't really have anything to do other than just wait for me to walk into the barnyard. And, and anybody else could walk in the barnyard. He hated me personally. And I'm telling you, I hated him, I hated him too. I hated, I hated that rooster. I would step into the barnyard, and y'all know about chickens, right? This rooster had two eyes. One looks this way, and one looks this way. And he wouldn't look straight at me because he, he knew what he was doing. So I'd, I'd be walking through the barnyard, you know, saying, you know, Jesus, please protect me. Jesus, please protect me. Jesus, help me. Jesus, protect me. Carry him up, you know, bucket of milk. And this rooster would, like, keep one eye on me, and, and he wouldn't, wouldn't, like, look at me exactly. He'd just peck and, like, walk sideways with this one eye looking at me. He'd get about five feet from me, and he'd come at me. He'd come at me to kill me. Now, in truth... Nobody has ever been killed by a chicken. Not one time. A chicken cannot kill you, but I thought I was going to die because he would come at me and, and, and the fur on the back of his neck would stand up and he'd come at me flapping his wings and, and, and flogging me. He'd fly up my leg and I'd be screaming. This happened every day, y'all, every day. 
I'd be screaming, running around the barnyard, screaming to daddy, screaming to Jesus. You know, somebody help me. This chicken chase. I mean, I would, I would run and I would cry. I was scared to death. Now, I would also like, like sling my bucket of milk at him. I tried to drown him with milk. I'd carry tobacco sticks. And I mean, I'd just run and scream. Now, now honestly, y'all, it was a chicken. It was a chicken. If I'd ever just stopped and thought, I could have kicked it to Portland. I could have kicked it to Portland, but it never even crossed my mind. I just ran in fear, and I screamed, and I'm telling you, that, that, that rooster ruined my life. It was a chicken. Now, let me just tell you something. The trials in your life, most of the time, are chicken-sized. They're chickens. Now, that doesn't mean you don't, you, you don't respond in fear. It doesn't mean you can't run. It doesn't mean you can't scream out to Jesus and your daddy and everybody else. It doesn't mean it doesn't ruin your life. But I'm telling you, for the most part, it's the chickens of life that, that tie us up in knots. And once the devil figures that out, if the devil realizes that he can, he can send you into a knot just by putting a chicken in your path, he will line them up. He will line them up. But somebody's out there saying, yeah, but Pastor Tim, you mean? Not all my problems are chicken-sized problems. Not every problem is a, you know, chicken-sized problem. So one day I went to visit my, my buddy in Woodburn. He's a neighbor. His name is Randy. He lived in a white house across from Hopkins Nursing Home. And I loved the guy, and I tried to keep up with the guy, I tried to check on the guy, and I hadn't heard from him in a couple of days. And so I went by to check on him one day, knocked on his door. Randy was really weird. He, he, he didn't come straight to the door, and when he got to the door, he didn't open it. He looked through the blinds, and he says, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? He said, no. He cracked the door open, and he said, there is a 900-pound chicken after me. Yeah, that's a true story. There's a 900-pound chicken after me. I, I said, Randy, what are you talking about? He said, there is a six-foot chicken outside my house, and, it, and it's been out there all day. I said, Randy, uh, I, I'm out here. There, there, there is no, there's nothing out here. He said, no. He said, yesterday I was taking my trash out. I was taking my trash out to the end of the driveway. And a six-foot chicken got after me, and it ran me all the way back to the house. And then it walked around my house all day looking in the windows. And I'm thinking, man, poor Randy, you know, he's lost his mind. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. He's crazy. I mean, you know, a six-foot, 900-pound chicken after him. And I said, Randy, I'll walk around your house. I'll, I'll look for you, and, and I'll, I'll tell you if I see anything. So I walked around the house, and, and y'all, I need to tell y'all there wasn't no six-foot chicken I said, I said, Randy, there's really nothing out here. I think you're safe now. He said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're safe. You know, you can take your trash to the curb now. Um, poor guy. I'm thinking, what a moron. I mean, you know, six, what? Here's the thing. The next day I went to Hopkins Nursing Home and I was talking to some of the staff. And one of the staff members said, Pastor Tim, did you hear about yesterday? I said, no, it happened yesterday. She said, somebody had an emu that got loose. Now, we're in Woodburn. Y'all know what an emu is? An emu is basically a six-foot chicken. 
I'm serious, y'all. At some point, somebody way out in Woodburn, you know, had emus. I think we, were we trying to raise them for meat? I think people are eating emus. Y'all know what an emu tastes like? It tastes like chicken. I'm sure it does. <laughs> no, y'all. Somebody had an emu that got loose, and that emu was walking around Randy's house, <laughs> scaring him to death. You know, I thought he was crazy. He was not crazy. There was a six-foot chicken looking in his windows and chasing him. Now, now, let me tell you something. In your life, it does not matter what size the chicken is. It does not matter what size the chicken is. You just need to know that God's promises are bigger. They're bigger. God's promises are bigger. So when God promises to do something in your trials, you better pay attention because God's going to do what God says he's going to do. So Paul says, your trials lead to endurance. Your endurance leads to strength of character. And even there you're thinking, yeah, you know, this sounds like something somebody would say. You know, this is going to build character. It's kind of like you enter the beauty pageant and you don't win like the pageant. You just become like Miss Personality. You know, nobody wants to be Miss Personality. I don't want to just get character, you know, because perseverance and character, I don't really know how that's worth it. But that's not the end either. Trials produce endurance. Paul says endurance leads to character, and character produces what? Hope. And hope does not disappoint us. This hope, this hope that Jesus brings, it will never disappoint you. You're never going to find that God doesn't do what he promises. You're never going to find that he doesn't have his way in your life when you give him your life. He is never, ever going to leave you, never forsake you. Your hope in Christ will never be disappointed. And you say, Pastor Tim, how do I know that? How can I know that? Well, what does the scripture say? Stay in the word with me. This hope will not lead to disappointment, verse 5, for we know how dearly God loves us. He's never going to disappoint you because he loves you. We know how dearly God loves us. But how do we know? How do I know that he loves me so? When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people wouldn't be willing to die for an upright person. Someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good, but God proved his great love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm in the middle of a message series entitled Sacrificial Love. And I've been saying that love is sacrifice. Love is giving. I've said that love is the power that moves us in everyday relationships to give without expecting anything back. To love is to give. I've said that any place you see true love, somebody sacrifice. And I've said that the greatest display of love is the greatest sacrifice of all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know that he loves you? He died for you. A Christian missionaries named Don and Carol Richardson, who went to West New Guinea back in the day to take the gospel to a group called the Sawi people, 
tribe that lived there in, 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 in New Guinea. This was an unreached tribe, completely unreached, never ever had seen outsiders, and so they'd never heard the gospel. They were cannibals. Y'all know what cannibals are, right? Cannibals eat people. They were can cannibals. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think back, y'all know Pastor Benji. He is our church planting partner in the Philippines. I love Pastor Benji. Think about Pastor Benji. He'll tell you a story that's funny, but he doesn't crack a smile, so you don't think you can laugh. So one day, Pastor Benji was telling me, yeah, um, this is a story in a story now. So Pastor Benji was telling me that he had taken the gospel to a, a, a village of cannibals that lived in the Philippines. Now, Pastor Benji's amazing because he just tells this stuff like this is every day, and in his world it is. God bless him. God protect him. So Pastor Benji took the gospel to a group of cannibals, and they received the gospel. They all got saved, and God changed those people. So sometime later, Pastor Benji said he went back and he was talking to the village chief there, and the village chief said, Pastor Benji, when we first met you, we thought you looked delicious. <laughs> like, Pastor Benji says that, but he doesn't smile. And I'm thinking to myself, that is horrible and also the funniest thing I've ever heard anybody say, you, you know? When we first met you, you looked delicious. So Don and Carol Richardson were going to the Sowie people. They're cannibals, but they're not just cannibals. The Sowie people had this completely upside-down moral worldview where for them the highest moral good like, like, like the greatest thing you could do in life, the, the highest thing you could aspire to was deception. It was treachery, betrayal. Now think about it. They're cannibals. If you're a cannibal, you eat people. But the only way to eat people is people have to get close enough to you, you know, so you can, you know, eat them. But if people know you're a cannibal, they're not going to come around you. And so the Sowie people had simply learned that whenever they would meet people, they received them as friends. And, and, and this was their entire culture. You bring people in, you, you, you treat them as friends, you show them kindness. Now, they are not kind people. None of this is true. They're not making friends with you. They bring you in and they begin to feed you. What are they doing? They're fattening you. They bring you in, they show you kindness, they fatten you up, and they let this go a long, long time. Because for them, this is the greatest thing in life. This is the greatest thing in life. They bring you in, they show you friendship, they fatten you up, and then one day, they turn on you and they kill you. And they think that's the greatest, highest achievement in life, betrayal. So Don and Carol Richardson, they know that they must share the gospel with the Sowies. They also know that their, their days are numbered. They, don't, they know that they're being nice, but they don't know how long they're going to be nice. They know the Sowie people. So Don begins to preach the gospel, and y'all, all, all, all of this is a true story. you got to read the book. you got to read his book. So Don Richardson said he began to share the gospel, and he shared the story of Jesus with the Sowie people. And the very first time he told them the story about how Judas, Jesus' friend, betrayed Jesus with a kiss, and they killed Jesus, the Sowie people all stood to their feet and began to clap and cheer because they now thought they had found the hero of the story. And the hero of the story for the Sowie people was Judas. He was the hero because in their minds, he did the greatest thing you could do. He betrayed somebody that thought he was a friend. Don and Carol Richardson at that point 
don't have any idea how to explain the gospel. How to explain the gospel to cannibals who now think Judas is the hero of the story. They continued to live among them and just pray, asking God to help them share the gospel. One day, Don and Carol observed the strangest ceremony. The Sowie tribe in which they were living was going to go to a neighboring village and make a peace treaty. Now, Don Richardson thought, this is, this is crazy because he knew that you can't trust the Sowies, that they're going to say that they're making peace, but they're just going to make friends with you so they can eat you later. You can't trust them. And so Don went and he observed the whole ceremony, thinking the whole time, you know, how, how, how can you make a peace treaty with people that, that prize deception? So the Sawi chief stepped out with the other neighboring village, and they said words promising peace. And then the Sawi leader, he turned around and took from the arms of a woman in the tribe, he, he, he took a baby, a Sawi baby, and he held it in his arms for a moment. And then he gave it to his neighbor. The Sowies gave a child, a baby, to the neighboring village. It turns out they call that baby the peace child. Now, you can't trust the Sowies. They're always going to lie to you because they think lying is a good thing. They're going to act like friends. They're going to promise you peace, but they're going to come back later and they're going to kill you in your sleep. Unless... They give you the peace child. They give you one of their own babies. And then you know that the peace is genuine. The friendship is real. Don Richards, it says he saw that and then he knew how to explain the gospel to the Sowies. He got back to the village and he told them about the God who loved them so much that he gave them his own son. He gave them his son, Jesus, and Jesus is the peace child. And that's how you know. The Sowies heard about Jesus, the peace child. They accepted the gospel. Jesus changed everything about the Sowie people. Jesus is the peace child, you understand? God has proven his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still his enemies, while we were still sinners. So you want the Bible to be all about you. You, know, you. you want it to be about yourself. You want it to be relevant to your life. It, it can't just be a book of rules that, that don't seem to apply. It can't just be a, a book from a culture, some Bible land way long ago that has nothing to do with your everyday life. It, it's got to have something to do with you. And I'm telling you, it's not really a book about you. It's a book about God. It's a book that shows you who God is. It's a book that tells you what Christ has done for you. But if you understand who God is, if you understand what Christ has done for you, then you begin to understand that this is all for you. What Jesus has done for me, he will do for you. You're thinking, how can I believe that? How can I know that? You know it because he loves you. 
He's not going to promise this and not deliver on his promise. He loves you. The maker of heaven and earth, the creator of the cosmos, you are the object of his attention and affection. He loves you. And you say, Pastor Tim, how can I know that he loves me? How can I know? And I'm telling you. He's proven his love for you. Proven it. God displays his great love for us in it while we are yet sinners. Christ died for us. You are so very loved. How do you know? Died for you. Pray with me. 